0: Hey, this is Jimmy Smith. On today's Unlock of the Cage podcast, I break down both Bellator and the UFC Bantamweight main events, but that's not all because the amount of 135-pound talent taking over this weekend is insane. I take a look at the boxing lightweight division with Javante Davis and Devin Haney's fights this weekend. I also sit down and do an interview with the one and only Xavier Scruggs to discuss the MLB lock. We have two main events. One in Bellator, one in the UFC, that are both in the stacked 135-pound division. What are the differences? What do we expect from both of these uh, fighters, both these main events, all four of these fighters? What do we expect from them? So uh, let's start with Bellator. Why not? I had Sergio Pettis on, friend of the show, had him on uh, to talk about this opponent, talk about this fight. Talk about where he is mentally, where he is physically. And I'm sorry, you might want to cover... I know you have headphones on. Ariel, you might want to like unplug your headphones or cover your ears because this is going to... Fighters lie. We lie all the time. It's part of our DNA. It's part of what we do. We're always... I know, that, I know I just told you there's no Santa Claus, right, Ariel? But they lie. They lie all the time about how things are and how things are going. Oh, everything's great. Dude, this camp is awesome. Never felt better in my life. That is what fighters do. So, uh... Respect Sergio Pettis. I think he's great. Um, As a fighter, love having him on the show. Everything, everything, everything. But uh, you can't always take a fighter at their word. They're always going to tell you everything's great. It seems and sounds as though he's in a great place. But going beyond that, going past his word about all this stuff, he's looked good. He's looked very good in Bellator. Moved up from 125 to 135 pounds, and he has not lost a step. In fact, I think he's looked uh, better at 135 than he ever did at 125. Beat Juan Achuleta last time out, Ricky Bandejas before that. Those are very tough dudes. Had a win over Tyson Nam in his last UFC fight. He is excellent. I was there when he beat Joseph Benavidez. Excellent fighter. So... He has the abilities, especially stand-up. His kickboxing is excellent. He's a product of Rufus Sport. That is Duke Rufus' camp. World-class kickboxing. World-class striking great hands. Of course, the younger brother of Anthony Pettis, former champ at 155 pounds. So he has the right sparring partners. He has the right pedigree. Has everything. The difficulty he's going to have in this matchup is Horaguchi is extremely well-rounded. And he's very hard to prepare for because he has a Japanese style. What does that mean? Japanese submission fighters, not uh, unlike traditional Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters, will attack from everywhere. They'll use flying stuff, a lot of leg locks. They take a ton of risks. So the idea that, that and, and the, the Pettis brothers do have exceptional jiu-jitsu, but it's, you got to be ready for anything all the time. Horoguchi also has a a varied striking style. I mean, he can do a lot of things very well, and he's unorthodox. He has an endless gas tank. He goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. That's what he does. So when I factor all these things together, it's not an unwinnable fight by any stretch of the imagination for, um, for uh, Pettis. It's just going to be difficult. It's not an easy win for anyone. He's going to have to keep the pressure on, keep it, I think, at punching, kicking range, and slow the fight down. What Horaguchi did so well, the first fight, he took on Darion Caldwell, who's a 135-pound champ in Bellator, took him on twice. First time out, caught him with, uh, in a guillotine, and that was in um, Japan. right, December 31st, 2018, the New Year's Eve Rising show. Guillotine, uh, minute 13 into the third round. Caught him in the funky submission. Caught him unprepared. Caught him, choked him out. Second fight, which was in Bellator, one unanimous decision, wore Darion Caldwell out. The problem Darion Caldwell had and has still is pacing. There's this problem in wrestling. There's a problem in MMA. He'll explode and do some crazy physical thing and then slow down. And explode again and then slow down. That's what he does. Horoguchi keeps the pressure on all the time. Now, the thing is, Pettis, for his part, has never had issues. He's never had issues with his gas. His pacing is great. He's able to slow matches down. He's able to speed matches up. The key is, can he slow Horoguchi down? Can he make it less about the explosion and more about the technique, more about factors that favor uh, uh, Pettis that's everything you're not going to keep up with Horoguchi what you got to do is gotta slow him down can he do that? yes will it be easy? no that's why they're having the fight so tactically that's what I look at it's about versatility and pacing he's versatile Uh, and he has an endless gas tank Pettis has to deal with both of those things and has to deal with them very effectively what will a win may, mean for either guy? Pettis right now, the champion, that means something. Um, Horaguchi a former champion, he wants his belt back. What does it mean in the eyes of the fans? I don't know. I'll ask you guys a little bit later about what would it take to make the winner of Horaguchi versus Pettis equal in the eyes of the, win, of the winner of uh, Rob Font and Jose Aldo. That's the big question, right? How could you make them equal? I don't know. It's up to you. Uh, 877-FIGHT-93, 877-344-4893. Which main event are you looking looking forward to most? And what would the winner of Horiguchi versus Pettis have to do to be considered better or equal than the winner of Aldo and Font? Two main events, same weight class. Are these people equal? I don't know. You tell me. So when I look at the keys to victory for both of these guys, if you're Horaguchi, you want a fast-paced fight with a lot of different positions, a lot of movement, a lot of attacks. If you're Sergio Pettis, make it more traditional in the stand-up. Hands up, chin down, everything you need to do, first-day stuff, and then uh, make it a slow match. Slow this thing down. Do not get in a foot race with Horaguchi. All right, so moving on to the UFC. Rob Font versus Jose Aldo. Do we buy the comeback of Jose Aldo? It's a question I'm going to ask you a little bit later. I want your answer on it. In his last five fights, he's 2-3. and Losses to Alexander Volkanovsky, Marlon Moraes, Peter Jan, wins over Marlon Vera and Pedro Munoz. I don't believe, and if, if you go all the way back to his loss to Conor McGregor, so he beats uh, Chad Mendes October 2014. It's been literally win some, lose some. Win some, lose some. He is 5-6 since defeating Chad Mendes in October 2014. That's where he is. So the idea of, you know, Jose Aldo's back and, you know, this comeback and he's really amazing. Okay, yeah, the numbers don't really bear that out. Has he lost to the best of the best? For the most part, yeah. Lost to Conor McGregor, two to Max Holloway, Alexander Volkanovsky, Marlon Moraes back when he was a, a really serious contender, Piotr Jan, the champion right now, uh, interim champion at 135. These are great guys. His wins, Jeremy Steven, Hanato Carnero, Frankie Edgar, Pedro Munoz, Marlon Vera, all of them in the good but not great category. All of them. So what looks to the, I don't know, the, 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 I don't say casual viewer, because that's a little bit of an insult in in our business. But to a lot of fans, it just looks like, wow, Jose Aldo is back. And in in my opinion, um, it's one of those things where he has taken on talent that shows his level. He's beaten good guys. Has he destroyed any contenders no he has not and every time he's taken on a contender a really elite guy you've seen the difference between what jose aldo is and what he was i want to make that very very clear before i break this one down so rob font excellent boxing very fast hands good in short uh at short range he's won four in a row sergio pettis Uh, who I just discussed, Ricky Simone, Marlon Marais, Cody Garbrandt. It's been a good run for him, 19-4 overall. Uh, He's streaking right now. He's number four in the divisions, exactly where he should be, and all the confidence is on his side. Jose Aldo, an excellent boxer in his own right. What has diminished, at least partially, is his ability to keep up in the kicking department, in the explosiveness department, in the gas department, all of those factors to me favor Rob Font. In a boxing match, Jose Aldo can still do damage at least early, but that's Rob Font's strength as well. Great puncher. Good attacking offense, good elbows, good ground and pound. The kid's got a lot. And so when I when I when I see it, can Jose Aldo win? Yes. Of course, I'll make my make my picks later. But I don't buy into this narrative that Jose Aldo is quote-unquote back. I don't. I'll dive into the weeds of it in a little bit. I think both main events will be incredibly entertaining. 135 is just can't miss. It is must-see TV. I've always liked it. Uh, I've always thought guys at that weight class uh, are destructive and fun to watch. I like versatility. I like fights where I'm going to see a lot of different stuff. And when it comes to you know, 135, you're going to see a lot of different stuff. And that's what I appreciate about it. And it's always that 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 idea of stakes, right? That's what makes a great fight to me. Both of these main events have a lot of stakes. They're both title fights. I'm sorry. One of us is a title fight. The other one, Rob Font Jose Aldo, is a contender fight. The winner probably gets the outside track right now, depending on where TJ Dillashaw is with his recovery and things like that. I don't think the winner leapfrogs TJ TJ Dillashaw as a contender, but Dillashaw might be out for a little bit. Had knee surgery for people who aren't keeping up with it, and it's a contender fight that 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 has real implications. Real serious implications. So I like the stakes. I like the questions about where Jose Aldo is. I can have my opinions about it for sure. But the, the the fact of the matter is Jose Aldo is having, I don't think he is where he was. He's definitely having a resurgence late in his career. Is it real or is it an illusion? I think we find out Saturday. And I think that's important. The 135-pounders are taking over MMA tonight and tomorrow, Friday and Saturday. Bellator, it's Horiguchi versus Pettis. And in the UFC, it is Font versus Aldo. All important, all in the Bantamweight division, you might go, Wow, that's a lot of action in the 135-pound division in MMA. And it's true. It is. But there's more. There's always more. Why? 135 in boxing. Arguably as good as it or not, if not better than it is in MMA. Boxing at 135 is awesome. It is full of talented names and some of them are fighting this weekend. The lightweight is the deepest division in boxing and uh, this weekend we get some action. Who might that be? You might say, well, uh, right now it is Devin Haney. He is an Excellent boxer at 135. He is undefeated. He is a world champion. Uh, He is fighting this weekend. And we also, versus Jojo Diaz Jr., that's a real test. Gervonta Davis versus Isaac Cruz. I think uh, that's much more likely to be a showcase for Gervonta Davis. But when you look at uh, Gervonta Davis, and I called some of his fights in PBC, The dude hits like you stole something from him. He's a protege of Floyd Mayweather, uh, and the guy has real boxing skills. And when he throws, he hurts you. He hurts you bad. Makes him incredibly entertaining. Now, if anyone saw his interaction with, I believe it was his girlfriend at the time, uh, at a basketball game, he manhandled her. He's not a good person. Not a good person at all, but he's one hell of a boxer. And I think this weekend it's absolute destruction. I think he does what he always does. The guy has 24 knockouts in 25 fights, um, and when he hits people, he just absolutely lays them out. What we want to see at 135 is the the best of the best, right? We want to see the, the, the best guys fight the best guys. And at 135, we really have an opportunity to do that jojo diaz tough dude for haney's wbc lightweight title that's on dazone that's december 4th which is that's right tomorrow the month is slipping away from us december 5th is gervonta davis versus isaac cruz that's on showtime pay-per-view for davis's wba regular lightweight title then Vasily Lomachenko versus Richard Comey, 12 rounds. That's December 11th. That's another fight at 135. Another fight that just happened at 135, a massive upset, Teofimo Lopez losing to George Cambosis Jr. Uh, Kambosos now owns the majority of the titles at 135 because they were taken from, by Teofimo Lopez from Vasily Lomachenko. So 135 is full of talent. All we want to see <laughs> – please, God, Are we asking too much of the boxing gods here? Uh, and by boxing gods, in this case, I mean boxing promoters. All we want to see uh, are fights, and I'm speaking, I think, for every boxing fan in the world. All we want to see are Devin Haney, Gervonta Davis, Vasily Lomachenko, Uh, George Cambosis Jr., and I would still put put Tiafimo Lopez in this mix, although he's probably moving up to 140 pounds. We want to see these guys fight one another. That's all we want. Are we asking too much? Apparently we are, because we never see it in boxing these days. All we want is a victorious Devin Haney, let's say, versus a a victorious uh, Gervonta Davis. That's all we want to see. When I was a kid Set your way back machine in the early 80s. This wasn't weird. We got the best lightweights in the world. We got the best welterweights in the world. We got them fighting one another. The best heavyweights in the world routinely fought one another. In the 90s, when I was in high school slash college, all right, the best fought the best all the time. Riddick Bo fought Evander Holyfield three times, Michael Moore fought Evander Holyfield. Michael Moore fought George Foreman. George Foreman fought Evander Holyfield. They mixed and matched the best names all the time. So one thing we get in in MMA that has a little bit spoiled, we know, for the most part, that the winner of Rob Font versus Jose Aldo will have the outside track, not the inside track, but the outside track, to a title shot. I'd say they're right now behind TJ Dillashaw. I don't think they're behind Sandhagen, but they're probably behind Dillashaw, the winner of this fight in terms of uh, who gets a crack at Piotr Jan or Aljamain Sterling when he comes back. I can't say the same in boxing. The majority of belts right now, 135, are held by uh, George Cambosis Jr. after his win over Teofimo Lopez. How a victorious Devin Haney, it'll probably be Devin Haney over Jojo Diaz, but yeah, we've seen bigger upsets. A victorious Gervonta Davis over Isaac Cruz a victorious Vasily Lomachenko over Richard Comey, when will one of those people get a crack at those four belts? I have no idea. I don't know if they ever will. Javante Davis right now represented by PBC. A lot of times PBC boxers just fight other PBC boxers, and PBC makes the money. So they're not exactly interested in, in cross promoting with someone else, even if it makes the biggest fight. One of the best quotes I ever heard about boxing, one of the best I ever heard was about Roy, uh, it was Roy Jones Jr., and it was B Hop, Bernard Hopkins. And they fought once at 160 pounds. Uh, Roy Jones Jr. won, and then they were talking about a rematch between them for years and years and years. And Jim Lampley said these two guys won't fight because they can't figure out how to divide 20 million between them. There was a lot at stake, and they couldn't make it work. Similar thing here. A lot of boxers, and don't forget Ryan Garcia at 135, so let's not forget that. Uh, Ryan Garcia, undefeated, 135-pounder. That guy is very much in this mix. That guy is a social media sensation. That guy is good looking. He has fast hands. He has knockout power. People love watching the guy fight. He's very much in this mix. Now, that's kind of the issue to me. When you can't figure out where to place these guys, it's crazy. ESPN's rankings have George Kambosos Jr. at number one. They have Vasily Lomachenko tied at number one, which is weird because he's coming off a loss, but they have Vasily Lomachenko, and it was to uh, Tiafimo Lopez, who George Cambosis just beat. So for argument's sake, I'm going to put George Cambosis Jr. at number one, Vasily Lomachenko at number three. I'm sorry, at number two. Gervonta Davis, 25-0 and 0 at number three. Devin Haney, 26-0 and 0 at number four. Tiafimo Lopez, 16-1 and 1 at number five. Big drop from number one, by the way, with that loss. Ryan Garcia, 21-0. and 0. At number six, number seven, JoJo Diaz, 32-1-1. That's a monstrous division, people. An absolutely monstrous division. This weekend, we'll see what Javante Davis has, probably a knockout. And we'll see what Devin Haney has, probably outboxing JoJo Diaz. But the idea that I... As a boxing fan and as a fight expert who has called boxing professionally, the fact that I don't know where any of these people then end up tells you a lot about the state of boxing. I know where Jose Aldo and Rob Font end up basically with a win and a loss. There could be some exceptions here. You know how it is. But by and large, I know where the winners go and I know where the losers go. When it, come to bo- when it comes to boxing, as talented as the division is, folks, I have no clue. And that is the whole issue with boxing right now. But check it out. Javante Davis taking on uh, as, you know, and in, in, in not that you have to like him as a person because I don't. But Javante Davis, a very, very talented boxer, taking on Isaac Cruz. Devin Haney taking on JoJo Diaz. Sunday and Saturday, respectively. Javante Davis on Sunday, Devin Haney on Saturday, Devin Haney on DAZN, Javante Davis on Showtime pay-per-view. Both worth worth checking out. It's going to be an amazing weekend of fights at 135 Boxing and MMA. We're going to This is Lindsay Rhodes, and I'm so excited for my podcast, The NFL Roadshow, to be joining the SiriusXM sports family. We'll be talking about the most compelling topics and to some of the most interesting people in and around the NFL, taking a look at things through my somewhat nerdy football lens. I like to push past the low-hanging fruit to get to the real stories that are going to make you feel like a smarter football fan. So please join me every Wednesday for The NFL Roadshow, available on the SXM app and wherever you get your podcasts xavier how you doing my man xavier scruggs mlb radio thanks for joining us buddy
1: hey thanks for having me man i appreciate it but uh i wish it was on better terms as far as yeah
0: <laughs> right exactly so uh what i read yesterday was lockout some art articles said walkout they don't seem to know the difference please explain it to us man
1: yeah definitely it- it's a lockout situation um the mlb owners uh, have locked out the players from using facility. It, mean, it means they cannot use the facilities. There's no offseason transactions going on at the moment. Um, and just really the the talks that were going on between the players association and MLB and the owners, Um, have basically come to a stop as far as the collective bargaining agreement goes for uh, an agreement for next season we do not have that right now so there is a lockout meaning this is baseball's first walk work stoppage in 26 years
0: Uh, as people in the know and i'm counting you among the people in the know right the insiders that know more than your average fan how much of a surprise was this man
1: To the to the to the insiders, the fans, supporters of baseball, it it was not as surprising because um, this has been a situation since about 2018. The last agreement was 2016. But since around 2018, there's been a a feeling that the Players Association have not been very happy about the current collective bargaining agreement. And they've been fighting um, to have some changes that will be in place in the next one. And as far as the owners go on their side, those changes that the players were looking toward making, um, they were unrealistic. They were not something that they felt that they could agree to. And there's been a large gap as far as what um, should be agreed upon by the next time we start playing baseball. That's why a lot of us knew that this was eventually going to happen. This doesn't mean that this that there might this might go into next season or even spring training. This now means that there is, from an owner standpoint, an urgency since the players are locked out to get a deal done as far as the next CBA. Um, that way, there is an agreement made and we can start playing baseball uh, when that time comes. But for now, it is really unforeseen and unclear as to what that looks like moving
0: forward what I keep hearing and reading as a layman who like uh, just you know I'm from LA I support the Dodgers I watch the playoffs I'm not a a a hardcore baseball fan in in, in any sense of the word so I want to tell you the the knowledge base I'm coming from which is you know I'm not I'm not an exceptionally well-educated fan what I'm reading about it is it's about when players can enter free agency. It's about luxury tax issues. Can you summarize this in a way for a fan like me to understand? Man? Yeah,
1: yeah, and um, and that's where it, those things that you mentioned, luxury tax threshold, um, uh, minimum salaries, is on the table. Uh, from a, those things, from a player's perspective, as okay, the minimum salary should be raised. Um, the MLB has made an, uh, an offer to increase some of those things, but the players association hasn't necessarily agreed to what they've, uh, what they've offered. Um, also there's things as to how long it takes a player to get to arbitration or a period in which um, they can become a free agent and and, and decide which team they want to go to and make uh, money along with the normal market uh, that is that that is the normal money that they should be making. Um, it, it takes players a long time to get to that point, and from a player's perspective, as a former player, I understand the want to um, have younger players make money earlier because one. So you go through a long minor league, um, a, a long minor league situation when it comes to MLB. There's mm. this is one sport where you don't get, um, you don't go straight to the league, right? Sometimes it takes a year, set guys, seven years to get to the big leagues, and then it may take them another six years before they get to free agency. And by the time that may be, they might be thirty four, thirty five, and they might be done with baseball in general or washed out. So there's a fighting point for the players to get those salaries. Um, started a little bit higher at a younger age also because analytics has become so important within our sport of baseball that the, that the owners and the teams value players at a younger age um, a little bit more than somebody that may be in the mid-tier of 29, 30 years old or even older than that. So the younger players are, are worthy of more value at that time. So players are trying to get the free agent earlier. Um, there's other things such as um, draft compensation. Uh, what what these teams are looking at when they give uh, when they what, uh, when their team signs a free agent and they lose a, a player, how do they get compensated in the draft going into next year? Um, there's also first year player draft situation. So there's multiple things, but ultimately, it from a player's perspective. They're trying to get paid at an earlier, earlier time period but also make the game as competitive as it can be on the field because there are situations where the players feel like owners are sometimes quote-unquote tanking or not putting the best product on the field. That way they can rebuild their system and try to fight for a championship five years down the road. The players don't want to accept that.
0: Uh, I'm speaking, of course, to Xavier Scruggs from MLB Radio talking about this lockout and how it's going to affect the season and the players and the owners. Uh, I'm going to ask you two questions that might have the same answer. Once again, as to the insiders, the people like you, the people like the owners themselves, the players themselves, baseball media, who's taking the heat for this situation right now, the owners or the players? And that this is perception. Uh, When it comes to the people on the inside, who is seen as kind of the unreasonable party here?
1: Yeah, I think when it comes to, uh, and a lot of this, you know, with our day in social media and and, and media in general, the the players look bad and, and mostly because of how much, money has already been offered this off-season to free agent signings. It's been the most that we've ever seen um, during this period of time. So it almost makes the the players look greedier um, because of the money that's been shelled out this year already. Um, and also because it seems as the owners and MLB have put out statements mentioning what they're able to concede or what they're able to compromise on and we haven't quite heard that so much from the player standpoint. It almost seems like the players have, have, have put a stick in the mud and said, we're not moving from here. And the owners seem to be saying, hey, we're willing to compromise some things. So from a media standpoint and from a, a, um, from a, a standpoint outside of negotiations, it looks a little bit worse on those players. But both sides – it, it, it ultimately we know both sides are about money and that's where um a lot of this can be uh, a lot of this can be frustrating is because you're talking about billion dollar owners and million dollar baseball players so that's why from a fan's perspective it seems very very frustrating
0: right so uh, is it unified the other part of the question is to your average fan is it the player's fault do the fans see it the way the insiders see it
1: I, I don't think so. And and I think because the fans ultimately want to see the things that benefit them, right? They want to see the best product on the field. They want to see. Um, so in that sense, they may not understand why an owner may be trying to rebuild his team and it takes a five to 10 year process that that happens in, in other sports as well in, in NBA and, and, and we've seen it in other sports. But So from a fan's perspective, you always want the best on the field. Also, you want your player. You don't want there to be a lockout. You want people to be playing. So, but you don't really get a true understanding of what the different sides are fighting for until you really dig into what some of these issues are, as we've explained a little bit earlier, um, and and find out whether it's more about the, the the money situation or is it more about the competitive nature on the field? Is it more about um, owners being able to get the most value out of their players and really creating almost that business sense um, for a team? Or is it more about, you know, the the players trying to get as much money as they can uh, in free agency uh, at an older age and at a younger age? I think there's a lot of discrepancies and that's why there's the separation between the owners and the players is so far apart right now. Um, it's really tough to see them coming together for a, an agreement in the, in the foreseeable future.
0: The last time, and I'm speaking to Xavier Scruggs from MLB Radio, the last time there was an actual strike, there was actual a, an actual problem with the season, was 1995, my senior year in high school. Uh, the problems in the 90s, uh, the labor market early on between MLB and the players, it set baseball back considerably. It took a long time for fans to come back. It took Mark McGuire, it took a home run race, it took a lot of things to get fans back to MLB. Everyone's got to be terrified of that situation right now. Am I wrong?
1: Yeah, no, you're, you're absolutely right. And and that's what's ultimately um, the, the, the most disappointing thing is that we've already even, even economically last year. And, and, and with everything in 2020. Um, You think about we've already taken a step back in some sports and fans have had to go through some issues um, with that whole pandemic situation. We don't want to have to take another big step back, especially if you're talking about words like a strike. That has not happened at all yet. But if there's things that escalate into that, that's exactly right. You're taking a step back. You're taking a big blow. Fans and supporters of the game start to become more concerned with other things and don't want to have to put themselves in position to worry about whether or not we're going to see baseball. That's where you start to lose fans and start to lose lovers of this game. Um, and that's ultimately the, the biggest disappointment when you don't have an agreement is that everybody loses. And, and the people that really pay to watch the game and the ones that are really concerned with uh, the excitement and, and what and the joy that baseball brings those are the ones ultimately getting the raw end of the stick
0: uh, the, the interesting thing and I've read a lot of articles about this recently about MLB they're having trouble because their fan base skews older than any other fan base major league baseball old people like baseball sometimes they raise their kids their grandkids to like baseball but it doesn't have that it doesn't have that 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 young fan base. What would what does that mean when you look at a strike or something that loses fans? MLB has had trouble gaining fans, period, over the last decade or so. How would a, a labor problem affect that, you think?
1: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's a whole other issue within itself. You're talking about a younger generation whose attention span is extremely fast. A three-and-a-half, four-hour-long game is not holding that attention span. So there has to be ways – that MLB is implementing to try to speed the game up and, and keep it more entertaining for that younger generation coming up. But ultimately if, if there's a bad taste in their mouth about, about the game right now, what would, what would encourage them to want to watch that it's already bad enough. So uh, along those lines, you're absolutely right. in the fan base ultimately takes a hit. And it's not just the ones that have been watching the game for a long period of time. It's that next generation that MLB is so concerned with um, that we see young players taking over the game, a young Fernando Tatis Jr. of the San Diego Padres, Juan Soto, some of these younger guys that are now the face of baseball, they can no longer be the face if there is a lockout. So how do you attract those younger generation, those people that have some type of interest in baseball? You lose that immediately.
0: What would be your bet, and I'm talking to Xavier Scrubs from MLB Radio, our expert here at SiriusXM, uh, wh- what would be your your confidence level that this drags on and affects the season coming up in 2022? Do you think it does or doesn't? I, I don't think it does because
1: both sides, the owners and the players, understand what happened in 2020. You already lost money last year because of the shortened season. Um, Nobody wants to have to go through that. Another reason is because our game is on the uptrend as far as international stars come into play in our game. Young players, like we talked about, really enhancing that younger generation to become more excited about the game. Um, We cannot afford to lose that. Baseball is on the right trajectory with those things. And if you take a step back, You ultimately hurt the game, you hurt the owners, you hurt the players, um, everybody's pocket. And then the biggest thing is you hurt the fan base. So I'm positive that it will not get to that point. Um, And and I'm sure that both sides understand the importance of not letting it get to that point because of what we've already seen in the past and how bad it has been. When you mentioned before the Mark McGuire era, um, the the last stoppage and and going and losing a postseason, losing a World Series, nobody wants to see that.
0: Um, I really appreciate, Xavier, your perspective on this. I appreciate your knowledge on it. And where do you see – and I know i got to let you go. I don't have a ton of time. The the next step in this process, when when will us fans see it? We know about the lockout. That's panicking a lot of people. What do you think the next step is and when will we see it?
1: Yeah, I think the next step is um, from a player's perspective, them understanding that – a lockout puts pressure on the players and for those players that are not able to train uh, rehab at their facilities, do some of those things that they're used to doing in the off season um, that puts pressure on them. And I think that ultimately lets the players know, Hey, what are we ultimately? What are we ultimately fighting for? What are the things that we can end up compromising on? What are? How far are we willing to go? Um, are we willing to lose games? Are we willing to lose money? Um, so I think you start to see, hey we cannot expect to gain everything back from the things that we lost in the 2016 CBA. I think the players start to understand, okay, let's be more realistic about things and figure out how we can best put ourselves back on the field. So to answer your question, I think there's a move from the players after this settles a little bit after these, um, these past recent meetings and before the lockout, I think there's a, a moment of a few weeks where, hey, let's clear the air. Let's think about what happened. And then I think they get back after it in, J- in January and try to figure something
0: out. Xavier Scruggs, I appreciate you, man. Uh, thanks for coming on and enlightening us. Thanks for your time, buddy. Unlocking the Cage with Jimmy Smith is part of the XM podcast network. The executive producer is Michael Russo. The associate producer is Kelly Murphy. Sound design by Nuri Balin. Andy King is director of sports podcasting for Sirius XM. Special thanks to Sirius XM's senior vice president of sports programming and podcasting, Steve Cohen. And SiriusXM Fight Nation program director, Marissa Rivas. SiriusXM Podcasts.